Welcome to the Vine Life Podcast. We're a church in Manchester who love Jesus, each other, and our city. Catch up on this week's message and more. Hi everyone, good morning. Oh, I love that intro video. I feel emotional every time. It is obviously the Word of God, but it's also the music. The music is powerful. Um, well, it is my... Uh, at the foot of a mountain named Sinai. So that's kind of where we're up to. That's a a very brief recap. And as we reach the end of chapter 18, um, they're there at this mountain, the foot of this mountain. We're going to be jumping ahead to chapter 32 this morning, and so there is clearly a gap to fill. So I'm going to give a whistle-stop tour of that gap um, to give you a bit of an overview of, of what's going on in the rest of Exodus. So the beginning of Exodus 19 is the beginning of this um, new, really large section of text which is set at this mountain. And the Israelites are actually going to be there for a whole year. And they don't leave there until the book of Numbers, chapter 10. So all of the rest of Exodus, that goes up to uh, chapter 40, all of the book of Leviticus and into the book of Numbers. So that is an awful lot of text of the the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. And it's because there are some really significant things that happen here. 
So specifically focusing on Exodus, we're going to have some things come up on the screen to just help us map this out and, and get it into our heads. Um, we've got chapter 19 through to the end of chapter 40 is, this, is one whole section that really fills out this idea that God is wanting to establish a covenant relationship with his people. So a relationship that is formalized and has binding promises that mark them out as God's people, where he is faithful to them and they are faithful to him. And there are some terms and conditions around that relationship. And so chapters 20 to 23, that's where we have the Ten Commandments and the 42, which follow, um, and which is where God shares the terms of this covenant relationship with Moses. As we move into chapter 24, we see that the Israelites agree to these terms and they give this resounding, yes, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do and we will be obedient. And then the end of chapter 24, it seals the deal with Moses going up the mountain into the very presence of God, into this, uh, this fiery cloud is how his presence is described. And he confirms the Israelites' commitment to wanting to be God's covenant people. And he's there for 40 days and for 40 nights. And chapters 25 to 31 is, um, is fully focused on Moses and God in this fire cloud. And God speaks seven times, and it's where he reveals the blueprints for the tabernacle. So that's the name of the place where God is going to dwell amongst his people. And then the narrative about the making of the, that tabernacle, that place where God will dwell, is in chapters 35 to 40, right at the end of Exodus. And Anna's going to the wonderful Anna Hubble, she's going to be sharing next week. And she's going to look at, I know, and she's, you just got a wow there, Anna. Um, and she is going to be exploring some of these bits, that uh, uh, the tabernacle sections next week. But there is one key difference between these two sections at the end, because in 25 to 31, we've had Moses be in the very presence of God for 40 days and 40 nights. No one, no one has been closer but then we get to the end of Exodus, and in the very final lines, we're told that Moses was not able to enter the presence. He was separated. So what's happened in between the mountain and that moment? Well, clearly, if we know our number system, it's chapters 32, 33, and 34. Then that's what we're going to be focusing on today. I'm a teacher, so, you know, any opportunity. Um, <laughs> And in those chapters, what we're going to be finding out today is, is a rupture of the relationship so severe and so devastating that even Moses, God's appointed person, was not able to enter his presence at the end. Okay, so you're with me? That's where we're going into today, chapter 32. Let's read verses 1 to 6 first of all. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, so remember he's been there 40 days and 40 nights, that's a long time, the people gathered, gathered themselves together to Aaron, Moses' brother, and said to him, up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has happened to him, what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, Take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your, your sons and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand, and he fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. 
When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast day to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. You might be familiar with the story of the golden calf. That might be the very first time you've read it or somewhere in between. But what I want us to try and get a handle on is why this moment is so devastating for this relationship. So we read that the people of Israel, so then they're unsure what's happened to their leader. They don't know where Moses is and and seemingly doubtful that he's going to come back at all. They decide, they go to Aaron and and they request a God, a God that is going to lead them on, a God that's going to be with them. And Aaron makes this golden calf and they worship this idol. They build an altar, they make sacrifices, they throw a party. As if this is the God who has rescued them out of 400 years of oppression and slavery. This thing that they've seen be built before their eyes from from rings of gold in their ears, they've seen it melted down and formed into this metal animal. That's the God that's going to lead them on. That's the God that had the power to set them free. Let's pay attention to four things that the Israelites are demonstrating in doing this. Firstly, they're breaking the covenant promises, so these binding promises that God was making with his people. So he's only just giving them the terms of the relationship where they're faithful to him and he is faithful to them. And and the first of those covenant commandments that we can find in chapter 20 are, you shall have no other gods before me, you shall not make yourselves an idol image, and you shall not bow down to them or serve them. So that's gone pretty wrong because they're doing all of those things. (laughs) So of most significance then, the people are breaking the very first covenant promises at the very same time that Moses is up on the mountain in the presence of God, mediating on behalf of the people to say, yes, we do want to be in this covenant relationship with you. Secondly, they're using gifts that are meant for something very, very different. So we read that the calf is fashioned by Aaron out of the rings of gold in the ears of the, of the wives, the daughters, and the sons. Now, where did they get those rings of gold? This, is, this was an oppressed and a slave people. Where did they get such resource? Well, think back to, to Rob's talk back on the Passover. And the Israelites, when they were leaving Egypt back in chapter 12, Moses instructed them to go to the Egyptians and ask them for their articles of gold and silver. Do you remember Rob talking about that? And the Egyptians, thank you, and the Egyptians freely gave them, probably because they were so terrified of what else God was going to do. Yes, have our resources. That's what's being used. But there's another detail to know within the broad story, because that phrase, rings of gold, it's the same phrase that is used to describe the resources needed to build the tabernacle. So what we see is that this gift from Egypt that signifies the liberation from oppression, that signifies the defeat of Pharaoh, and is meant to be used and reserved for building the place that God is going to dwell, is actually being built to use this to build a golden calf. Thirdly, they're expressing trust in a false God because we read that they attribute their freedom from slavery 
in Egypt to this calf. And, and in that expression of trust, they build an altar and they bring their offerings. They bring their, their peace offerings. They bring their burnt offerings. And that language there is the exact same language following the Ten Commandments that God uses to ask how his people express trust in him. So something that is meant to be reserved for him is being used to express trust in this golden calf. And fourthly, there's a distortion of worship. So we read that they have a feast, a party to celebrate this idol, and we're told that they sat down to eat and drink and they rose up to play. And this word play, it's not child's play, not a game of throw and catch, that's not what's going on. It's play which involves physical touching. So whatever the people are doing, the use of that word play in other scriptural contexts would certainly suggest that what we're looking at here is some kind of sexual connotation to their party. So we're looking at a ritual orgy, which probably isn't a phrase you're anticipating hearing on a Sunday morning. But there we go. That's where we're at. We're taking the text as it comes to us. <laughs> so what a, what a distortion that is. Now, all of this is pretty removed from our, our culture and our context, isn't it? So let's just take a, a step. I'm a big fan of trying to uh, look big picture and, and check in with where we're up to. What is it that's going on? Well, I think what we're meant to be seeing is that God really wants his people to know him. That's the whole point all along. He wants a relationship with people that he loves and he wants to mark out as his own. But the people of Israel don't seem to know how to participate in this relationship, despite only just agreeing to it. And we see seeds of this back in chapter 20, because actually, I think this is the tragic thing, is that the Israelites also had the opportunity to ascend the mountain into God's presence. But sadly, we're told that they were afraid and they stayed far off and asked Moses to go in their place and on their behalf. They didn't know how to handle this God. He's mysterious and he's powerful, isn't he? His presence is this fire cloud on top of the mountain, which quite frankly does sound terrifying. He's a God that's revealed in the wilderness and he's a God that requires trust on a daily basis. So the picture that's being created is of a people who want to replace who God really is with something that's more workable, more manageable, more predictable, something within their own fabrication, something within their own imagination and within their own understanding. Can we see that that's what's going on here and why this is so devastating? So how does God respond? Clearly he's not happy, but let's see how. <laughs> so at this point, the camera shifts focus back to the top of the mountain, to God and Moses. So seven to 10, the Lord said to Moses, go down, for your people, whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt, have corrupted themselves. They've turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now, therefore, let me alone, that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation of you. God is hurt. 
God is angry. He wants to be left alone. He wants Moses to go away. He wants to wipe out these people and start again with Moses. It's really emotional language and it perhaps isn't a part of scripture that we dwell on that often. And it likely sits uncomfortably for us. It does for me as I read this. But I think there is something of the character of God that is being displayed here and something of how he interacts with us as his human partners that actually is really profound and incredible. So stick with it, even if you are feeling a bit uncomfortable right now, and let's work it through. Because there's nothing in the text that suggests that God is, um, his anger is being presented as overdone or a bluff or a threat that he has no intention of, of acting on. That's not how it's presented. Notice that God tells Moses to leave him alone. And he then goes on to explicitly state what his plan of action is going to be. Notice that part. Christopher Wright um, has written a commentary on, Moses, on Exodus, which I'd love to say I've read all of and I haven't, but I have read enough to know that it's helpful. Um, he's got a helpful insight here which points out that God didn't have to say that. He didn't have to say to anything to Moses at all. He could have, in his wrath, acted immediately without consulting or informing Moses in any way. But instead, he pauses and he makes his divine will vulnerable to Moses' challenge. And that is what we're going to go on and explore. Because what follows over the next couple of chapters are five acts of intercession, five acts of prayer by Moses as he engages with God. And in the first act of intercession, Moses seems to recognize that God's, God's view can only be countered through an appeal to God's own prior words and actions. Let me explain. He does it twice. I'm going to paraphrase this next bit. Moses says, you just revealed your name to all of Egypt through what you did. So notice the shift in pronoun. It's not me. It's you. You did this. And now you're going to destroy your people that you just liberated. That's not going to be good for your reputation. That's not consistent with who you say you are. That's one, number one. Second one, you made an oath with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. So there's that link back into Genesis. You made a promise to give them descendants who would inherit the land. That promise isn't just for me. It's for all of Israel. That's what you've already said you would do. So Moses seems to be appealing to God to change what he said he would do in response to Israel's unfaithfulness by remaining faithful to, to what he has said he would already do in the past. Can we see that? So in, put it another way, in asking God to change, Moses is actually asking God to be consistent. And God responds. So as you carry on reading the word that you uh, in most of our translations, is the word he relented. Another interpretation is that he settled himself. God comforted himself. So it seems that God is allowing himself to be, to be moved by the prayer and by the intercession of this mediator figures in Moses that he is appointed. And he comforts and he settles himself as a result. God is allowing himself to have a conversation with Moses that he didn't have to have. So I think there is being, there's something 
really precious that we are being shown here in these quite frankly difficult verses. <laughs> There's something we're being shown here of the nature of our relationship with God is, is his divine will interacts with us and in our history. So to go back to Christopher Wright's commentary, what he draws out from this, it's a bit wordy, but it's good, is that far from human intercession being an irritating but occasionally successful intrusion on God's prefabricated blueprints for history, Moses' prayer becomes an integral part of the way God's sovereignty in history is exercised. Have we got that? Moses' prayer becomes an integral part of the way that God's sovereignty in history is exercised. I think that's profound for the invitation that's before us as his people. And as we continue through chapter 32, Moses goes down and, and he sees for himself what the people are doing. And he's not pleased either. So he shatters the stone tablets of the covenant. He pulverizes the calf into dust and he makes the people drink it. We're not told why. Is it, is it a sign of its total destruction? Is it to demonstrate how utterly temporal the existence of this golden calf is? Is it to show how completely powerless it is? Like We're not told. Perhaps it's one of those things. Maybe it's something different that I've missed. I'm not sure. And then he sees this ritual orgy that's taking place. And he calls the Levites. So he calls this particular tribe out of Israel. And he sends them to kill all those who presumably are the instigators of it. And we're told that 3,000 Israelites died that day. Moses is the one that enacts this. God, God didn't command that. But it does. you cannot escape the fact that it does seem that Moses is enacting God's arm of judgment in this moment. And I think that's another point of tension for us to hold. And after those 3,000 die, Moses says to the people, you've committed a great sin. There's more mediating and intercessing that need, inter, interceding that needs to be done. So I'm going to go back up the mountain. I'm going to see if I can atone. Now, Lucy talked about atonement as we took communion this morning. Because the, the last time we heard about that, it's a word we perhaps don't use all that often for us today. We hear, first hear about it back in chapter 25. And it's um, describing the Ark of the Covenant and what the priests would need to do um, to come to the mercy seat with a sacrificial animal whose blood as it would spill would, would atone, would cleanse for the sins of Israel. That's the last time we've heard about it. So is that what Moses is going to do? Is he going to take up a sacrificial animal to the top of the mountain into God's presence? Well, in his second act of intercession, at the end of chapter 32... What Moses actually does is offer his own life. He offers his own life as an atonement for the sins of the people in order for this relationship to be restored. In verse 32, he says, But now please forgive their sin. But if not, then blot me out of the book that you have written. Wipe me off the face of your scroll. Kill me. That's what he's saying. So what we're seeing in these chapters of Exodus then is, is the fracture and then the repair of this covenant relationship with Israel because of the intercessory mediator who went up into God's presence, who offered his own life on behalf of the sins of others. I'm sure you can see where I'm going to be heading this morning because doesn't that sound like someone else that we know? I think it's extraordinary what we're being shown here. And in response, God says, I'm not going to kill you in place of the people. 
but I can't be around them. They can go into the promised land, but I can't be with them. I'll send an angel to go with you. And perhaps that's a good deal. God says they can still have this promised land that he's always intended for them. It's just he's not going to be there. But Moses isn't satisfied. As we move into chapter 33, it tells us acts of intercession, sort of three and four, which kind of merge together. Is Moses saying, listen, we don't want to go anywhere without you. If your personal presence doesn't go with us, then don't send us out from here. How will it be known that we have found favor in your sight if you are not with us? How will it be known that we are distinguished as your people? And hopefully this is ringing the bell because this is Karim's beautiful voice that is saying these words in our, in our intro video. It's what Ralph began with in, this, in our series um, for the very first week as we read that what God once again responds in accordance with what he always intended and always wanted to do. My presence will go with you and I will give you rest. He's always wanted relationship. He has never wanted separation. My presence will go with you and I will give you rest. He's not a God who rescues and then sets us off our way on our own for us to navigate things by ourselves. That's not who he is. And still Moses persists in boldness. Show me your glory is the next thing that he says, asking for more of God's divine presence, more of who God is. And what a different character we're being shown here than the excuse-making Moses at the burning bush that John explored a few weeks ago. Something is shifting in who Moses is as he is before and in, in, in and around God's presence. And God does. He, do, he shows Moses more of his glory, but only his back. <laughs> That's all Moses is allowed to see. Such is the unfathomable and, and uh, mind-blowing fullness of the glory of God. And then we're into chapter 34 where new stone tablets are made, representing that the, the covenant relationship between God and his people is being restored and renewed. And held within this section is the most requoted part of scripture within the Bible itself, where um, God, some, where God uh, makes a statement about his own character that is almost summarizing how he has moved in this story that we've been looking at this morning. And it's actually where Lucy started our service this morning. The Lord, the Lord, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in loyal love and faithfulness. This is like ground zero for some serious understanding of who God is in this moment. He's not going to break his covenant promises. He's going to be patient and show compassion. But as God goes on to say, this cannot be at the expense of his justice. There is a tension that is being presented here. But what is clear is that God's ultimate baseline and in his deepest heart and purpose is mercy, is compassion, and is forgiveness. And then we have the fifth and the final act of intercession. As Moses says, it seems I've found favor in your sight. Come with us. Come right in the middle of us. And he goes back down the mountain to the people. And he's shining with the divine glory. And we're told that Moses has to cover himself with a veil. There's a separation of the glory that is on Moses and the people. We're told that they were afraid. And it's mirroring the veil that is, that is ultimately going to be in the tabernacle to separate God's presence from the people. God is there, but there is a veil. 
Okay, how are you doing? Good. We've worked our way through those three chapters. That is 32, 33, 34. So let's try and get this to land, uh, land for us. I think the point of the golden calf story um, is to say that, that God's, God's purpose, God's desire has always been to work out his plan in the world through a covenant people. But the problem is, is that covenant people, from the moment that they say yes to him, haven't wanted a relationship with the real him. Now, we may not be building a physical golden calf, as far as I'm aware, if you have those skills, well done. Um, but we, don't, we do have the opportunity this morning to stop and to ask ourselves whether there are places in our hearts, in our beliefs, in our actions that reveal um, a sense of us trying to make God a bit more manageable and a bit more workable and a bit more within our own understanding. So some questions to ask ourselves that, that might help us re- reflect on this. Do we reduce our relationship with God to one which being, uh, that fits into our lives in a way that's just convenient? It's just convenient for us how we make that work. Are we, restricted, are we restricted in the way that we think he works, resulting in anything that doesn't meet our expectations, giving way to frustration or disappointment or impatience? Does our relationship with God stand or fall on another's leadership or ministry? Or actually, are we building a relationship with God for ourselves? And what is it we're, we're drawn to when life feels hard, when there's waiting, when there's mystery, when there's complexity and confusion? Do we draw near to him? Is this the invitation we have? Or actually, do we use other things to numb and to distract? No matter our changing nature, where we may fall short time and time again, where we may be limited in our humanity, the story of the golden calf teaches us that the only way that we can stand before our consistently faithful and kind and merciful God as his blameless partners is if we have a mediator and an intercessor working on our behalf. Now, you knew I was going to go here. 1 Timothy chapter 2. For there is only one God, and only one mediator between God and humanity, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom, a substitutionary sacrifice to atone for all. That's where we began with communion. Jesus is the one by whom we can stand before our God as his blameless partners for all time, for every single one of us. No one is excluded from that. The invitation is there for everyone. And Paul tells us in Romans 8 that Jesus is at the right hand of the Father right now interceding for us. He is our intercessor. He is our mediator. And to be a follower of Jesus means that we we know we can stand pure and blameless before God, a God who has always loved us, a God who always wants relationship, who never wants us to be far off. So we can stand before that God without condemnation because of the mediating work of Jesus on the cross where justice and mercy met and were reconciled. So no matter what we've done, no matter where we've fallen short, no matter where we set expectations of ourselves that we might not meet, the sacrifice that Jesus made on the cross is enough. 
There is nothing that can separate us from God's love. There is nothing that can separate us from his presence, his promise that he is with us and he goes with us. Because the promise of that presence isn't about our worthiness. It's that he is worthy. And he says that we are. Jesus is sufficient. God's plan all along was to be made known through his people marked by his very presence being with them. We know that the veil of the temple was torn as Jesus died on that cross, that that presence is no longer restricted. His presence is here. His presence is with us. And that's what I feel as Lucy comes back up in a sec. I feel that's what is the opportunity for us this morning is to be able to come before him and know that before him, And through Jesus, we are cleansed, we are free, that actually God wants to use us and partner with us, that we're invited into the type of relationship where we actually get to converse with God on things, that he doesn't just inflict his plan on us. I hope you enjoyed today's message. If you want to find out more, head to our website, findline.co.uk. Or follow That's what I'm wondering for this morning, Lucy. I'm going to hand over to you. God bless. See you soon. Thanks, everyone. Great. Thank you, Emma.